Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, welcome to Heart of the Matter. I'm Sean McCraney, your host. We want to welcome Alan and Richard Holden and Lori here in the uh, studio. Uh, if you are interested in streaming video, please right now call your friends in Bombay, your sister in the Windy City, your brother in California. Tell them to go to www.bornagainmormon.com. And they can go right to the TV show. They can go streaming video, watch the show live if they'd like. Church Scouts, this week, they went out to West Jordan Community Church. And our Church Scouts came back and reported that if you, reported that if you want a friendly place that gives you personal attention and uh, has a great pastor who teaches from the Bible, Lance McGinnis, West Jordan Community Church, 6268 South 1300 West in Taylorsville, Utah. So uh, they'll be added to our church recommendation list on the uh, www.bornagainmormon website. Heart in the Home this week, actually Heart in the Civic Center, Nampa, Idaho, this Sunday, 7 o'clock. If you're watching streaming video and you live in the Idaho, Boise area, please join us. It's going to be a great time, and we look forward to seeing all you uh, fans out there. Listen, there is a support group that has begun Uh, We praise God for this and uh, for questioning Mormons, for Latter-day Saints who are kind of wondering what's going on. If they they want a support group or people they can talk to or or, uh, ask the questions and get the right answers to, they're called Truth Seekers. Get them at www.truthseeker333 at comcast.net. And that's right there on your screen, so you can go to www.truthseeker333 at comcast.net. Phone number is 801-598-7470. They're establishing chapters around Utah. They have one right now in the Salt Lake area. And if you want to join them, call them, email them, go to the site, and you'll know of a place where you can go with like-minded individuals with questions. Very important for your fellowship and friendship in the Lord. Last of Born Again Mormon, we still have a few cases left. If you're interested in one of the original uh, versions without page numbers, you can go to the website and check that out. Listen, it's really easy to be the front man of this whole thing. Uh, I get all the glory. People write, oh, you're doing such a good job, yada, yada, yada. And you know, there are so many people behind the scenes that I want to take just a minute and thank. Uh, I want to ca- thank those people who carry our book. Christian Gift and Bible Stores here in Utah, Oasis Books, Benchmark Books, Calvary Chapel Salt Lake City Bookstore, all carry our book in this area. We're grateful for them. The station owners, Pat and Connie, station manager, Denny Ermel, who gets this thing running every single week. We have dedicated camera uh, operators who I love to death, Kurt and Michael, who are here each week helping us out. Our graphic peeps, uh, Brandon, Nicole, and Brendan, uh, who helps so much. Our webmaster, uh, Robert Shankasaurus. Our podcast internet wizard, Andy the Friendly Ghost. We have television operators, Jeannie, Amy, Merle, Jeremy, Shane, Kristen, and all their children. We have Heart in the Home volunteers and hosts. We have Heart in the Church pastors and willingness to open their church so we can share the message. Those of you who pray for us, those of you who send advice to us via email, those of you who contribute financially, who choose to do that. My personal assistant, Michelle the Unique. 
my right-hand man in ministry, Kevin Kay, Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, my beautiful wife and daughters, Mallory, Cassidy, and Delaney, and all of you who diligently and quietly support this ministry in ways that we will never know. I thank each of you from the bottom of my heart. We're very grateful for this. All right, Breakdown. It's a new show. It's coming on March 6, 2007, right after Heart of the Matter. You just stay tuned if you are uh, young, uh, youth-oriented here in the Salt Lake area or greater Utah. It's a show for you. You can go to Breakdown at ElevationStudios.tv. And guess what the first show is about? I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to tune in. March 6th. 2007, it's a surprise show as their kickoff show. You'll get more information as we draw closer to that date. Last week, there was an article in the Logan Herald uh, that had my ugly mug in it, holding my Bible, and a story about a heart in the home that we did there. It was a great article written by Meredith and uh, thankful for it. But in that article, I've gotten some calls and emails about me stating in the article that I don't believe the LDS are going to hell. That was what it said in the, in the uh, paper. And I just want to make a clarification on that. What I said and what I always say on the show and in other places is that I don't believe all LDS are going to hell. Uh, and what I really mean is I don't believe all LDS are going to hell any more than I believe all professed Christians are going to heaven. I think it's an individual basis that happens with the person. That's always been my stance, and that's what I meant in that article. Last week, we had a call from Alan who gave me a challenge, and he said, this is verbatim because I, I rewatched the show, uh, about change in scripture, uh, I believe it is wrong for the Mormons, that if it is wrong for the Mormons to change scripture, it is wrong for the Bible prophets. There is one in Jeremiah chapter 36, the last verse, where the punchline, the last verse is changed. He adds to it. I'll let you look that up. So I did look it up, and I want to examine that for you, like I said, told Alan I would. In that chapter, what happens is uh, King Jehoiakim is um, given a scroll that was written by Jeremiah. And what he did was, Jeremiah, he wrote this scroll according to what the Lord told him. Baruch recorded it for Jeremiah, and then Baruch read it to the people. And then he also read it to the princes of the king. And the king sent Jehudai, not to give you too many names, but the king sent Jehudai to get the role. And Jehudai then read this script that Je uh, Jeremiah received from the Lord to the king. And the king, upon hearing it, burned the scroll. All right? So then the Lord ordered Jeremiah and, uh, to write a new scroll. And the scripture says that he wrote everything that it was said before. But he added some things about the destruction that King was going to experience in his life. And this is the so-called change edition that Alan was referring to that he likened to the LDS who received revelations like in the Doctrine and Covenants and presented those out and then came back and changed those revelations and uh, called them scripture later. There is absolutely no comparison between the two. Come on. 
I mean, here the biblical prophet receives a revelation. It's read to the people. It's burned. He re- gives the same revelation again. They write it again. And then they add what the Lord is going to do to the king for burning the scroll in the first place. This has no comparison to what the LDS do with the changes in the Book of Mormon or changes in the Doctrine and Covenants. Alan, you should be ashamed of yourself for bringing such trivial matters to heart of the matter. But it was a good attempt, I guess, to, to thwart us. All right, we are going to have a word of prayer. Join me if you will. Dear Lord, we thank you. We're grateful for uh, all blessings. We ask you to be with our listeners, viewers, audience, camera people, helpers, volunteers. Help me to say the things you want me to say in the tone and spirit you want me to say them. In Jesus' name, amen. We've talked about his grandparents. We talked about his parents last week. Some of the things I'm going to talk about now are... um, going to sound going to make you feel sorry in a sense for Joseph Smith. And the reason I'm doing this is because I want you to have some understanding of what made him the man he became and why he saw what some things that helped him contribute to seeing this life and religion and doctrines the way he did. It's not it's a little piece of the puzzle that we are slowly putting together throughout this year of 2007 about church history. And again, I am describing those things you don't typically hear in the LDS church when it's taught. So first, let's tell, talk about a story that almost every LDS young person has heard sometime in their primary experience. And it's the story about Joseph's operation. Now, typhoid fever had slipped through the Smith family. They all had it, but no one died from it. And the fever left Joseph Jr.'s body uh, when he was six years old. But about a week later or so, he developed a sore under his underarm. And this sore, according to their history, drained quarts of uh, ugly, infected matter. And then it healed up. And so they thought, well, he's going to be okay. But then uh, later on, he said, there's a pain between my ankle and my, on my shin bone, between my ankle and my knee. So they, they came, a doctor was brought in, and they inside they cut that open, and they saw that there was an infection there. And so after they cut it open, lanced it, the infection drained out, and he wasn't in any pain anymore. But as the infection healed, or as the, the wound healed, the infection came back. And I, I believe it came back twice. So a team of doctors were called in from Dartmouth College, and they gathered around the boy in his room at the Smith home, and they said, we've got to amputate this leg. And this is a story that's often told in the LDS church. And according to the Smiths, especially biographical sketches, Lucy Max Smith, she said, no, you're not going to amputate his leg. And that Joseph Jr. said, no, you're not going to amputate my leg. And Lucy Max Smith says, I told the doctors, chip away the bone that's infected. And uh, that, let's try that before you cut his leg off. And the doctors said, okay, we'll do that. And then they gave this six-year-old boy a suggestion. The doctor said, we think that you should drink some wine or brandy that's going to help you uh, deaden the pain that you're going about to experience. And Joseph refuses. Now, this is the big story that they tell in, in church, and it's a heroic story. You have this young prophet who came up with the word of wisdom later on, Doctrine and Covenants, section 89, and he says, I refuse to drink this alcohol. And so, you know, you're sitting there as a Latter-day Saint, you're thinking, that is so honorable, you know, I'll never drink alcohol. And, and then they cut into his leg, and they chip these bones away, and he's screaming, and there's blood everywhere, and he's white as a ghost, and it's just an ugly scene. 
we need to look at this a little closer, all right? And it's not that I'm not saying this poor kid didn't go through this. I believe he did. And what a horrible experience that he did. But first you have to ask, where did the wine come from? And where was the brandy? Did the parents uh, have that in their home? Or did the doctors from Dartmouth carry this around in their satchels and say, here, drink this? I would tend to believe that brandy and wine were from the Smith home. And so that automatically indicates something to us about the Smith's early life, which you never hear taught in the church. Next, what caused a six-year-old boy who was going, undergoing severe pain to say, I'm not going to touch alcohol? especially in light of the fact that this would-be prophet drank alcohol as an adult and as the prophet. So if he drank alcohol as an adult, what was it that made him say, I'm not going to drink alcohol now? Now, some people say he didn't drink alcohol as an adult. And there's several instances in reputable church history that says he did. Josiah Stowell, who associated with Smith, Joseph Smith in 1825 to 1827, said the prophet would take a glass, quote, but not get drunk. All right. And Martin Harris, who's uh, just an intricate part of church history, especially in the establishment of the Book of Mormon, he was brought before a church high council court in 1834 for stating that Joseph drank before translating the Book of Mormon. All right. Account books from Lemuel Durfee's farm show large quantities of liquor cider delivered to the Smith family during the spring and summer of 1827. And all this can be found in Dan Vogel's early morning documents, all right? So why would this suffering six-year-old say, I'm not going to drink no matter what? And why wouldn't his mother tell him, Joseph, just drink this. It's, it's, this is how we anesthetize you. This is how you're going to be able to endure this pain. And the answer lies in how the six-year-old boy perceived alcohol uh, in his home. And I suggest that this was in light of the fact that his father had a great problem with it and that he knew what it did. He could sense that as a very young boy, and he said, I'm not doing it. He sided with his mother. Now, uh, if you view the negative effects of alcohol firsthand as a child, you can make a decision very quickly that you're not going to touch it no matter what. This, in my opinion had to be the case in this, and it gives you insight, again, into what was going on in the home at that time. These aspects are never discussed in the church because they want to paint a heroic picture that you can look to instead of giving you the facts. Now, I'm not saying these facts would make you say, oh, the church isn't true. I'm just saying they should be taught so you have all the information about what went on instead of just some of it. All right, there's other factors that played heavily in the makeup of the boy Joseph. And this was exposure to what I believe were a number of extreme, extremely difficult and painful and odd circumstances throughout his life. And all of those play a part in the picture that Joseph became. We have heard of the extreme pain that he went through with an operation like this at six years old. I don't think it would be difficult if we had a child today who went through an open leg operation where they took a hammer and mallet and chipped the bone out of his leg without anesthesia that many people today would believe that would affect a child's psyche for the rest of their life. Yet back then we can just accept it as just a normal thing and it's, but I believe it affected his psyche. All right. 
He, ex he experienced extreme metaphysical uniquenesses and differences in his family. His father dreamed dreams that were so prophetic that they were included in the Book of Mormon. His mother saw visions of heaven and she went out into the grove of trees to pray for these metaphysical experiences. There was extreme religious factionalism in his neighborhood. The burned over district of New York where one preacher was saying, you have to do this to be saved. And another preacher saying, you have to do this. And it was an extreme experience and his family was ripped up by these religious fights. So that played into the extremity that this young person was exposed to. Joseph was also uh, exposed to extreme physical labor. Uh, Joseph Jr. himself said that as a result of their poverty, that all the children who were able, quote, were able to render any assistance were obliged to hard labor. Uh, Lucy Max Smith notes that in the first year of moving to Palmyra, when Joseph was only 12 or 13 years of age, that the Smith's father, Alvin, Hiram, and Joseph cleared 30 acres of land for cultivation. That's four men in one year clearing 30 acres of land, one of these men being 12 or 13 years old. Bushman, who's an LDS historian, calls this a Herculean event. And if any of you have done uh, work out on a farm, I have, with woods, moving them out and doing the land, it is brutal. 30 acres in a year, it's, uh, it's either an exaggeration or they, were, they toiled in great labor. There was also great social condemnation for the Smiths' poor social status. If you are poor, you know what it's like today to live in a society that is materialistic. The Smiths knew that too. Joseph's mother, Lucy, was very sensitive to the remarks about their low social status. Speaking of a log home that they inhibited, Lucy wrote, I have tis true suffered many disagreeable disappointments in life with regard to property. Joseph's father had a long history of difficult creditor problems, and they were always, the family was constantly on the board, uh, border of losing a home or actually having lost a home. They were always worried about where they were going to live with this large family because the money problems were so difficult. Their financial problems carried over into their attire. Now, when you look at pictures of Joseph Smith from the LDS library meeting houses all around the world, they have a young man who's clean cut and he's wearing white shirts usually and he's sitting there and it's so nice and well lit. Daniel Hendricks, a Palmyra resident from 1822 to 1830, said that he frequently saw Joseph Jr., quote, in torn and patched trousers, held to his form by a pair of suspenders made out of sheeting, with his calico shirt as dirty and black as earth, with shoes so worn he must have suffered in the snow and slush. When Joseph Sr., his father, appeared before Judge Neely in March of 1826, a resident of Bainbridge commented that he was so poorly clad that it looked like he was a wandering vagabond. I do not mention this stuff to poke fun of the Smith's poverty. I really don't care about clothing whatsoever, and if I could wear rags myself, I probably would, ask my wife. I'm pointing this out to help you paint a picture of where things came from. If you turn to Messiah chapter 3, you'll find a great discourse on how people look down on others who are dressed poorly. And how if you look in the uh, vision of Lehi, how all the people dressed in fine clothes are looking down and pointing their fingers at the poor people gathered around the tree of life. There's a theme that runs through the Book of Mormon that parallels these painful experiences that Joseph Smith endured as a child. 
Okay, it's kind of ironic, too, as a side note. Uh, if Joseph and his family appeared at an LDS meeting house today, or Jesus appeared, uh, neither of them would be welcome into the ward by virtue of the way they looked. I think that's uh, very telling about the uh, direction the LDS church has gone with their materialism. Uh, they had extreme uprootedness or fear of being uprooted. I talked about how they lost a home. They were always having creditors come and say they're taking their home. Um, following their parents' pattern, Joseph and Lucy circulated among the villages in Upper Connecticut Valley before migrating to Palmyra and Manchester, New York. Again, they moved constantly because of their socioeconomic condition. Excuse me. Joseph also experienced extreme treatment at the hands of people that he should have been able to trust. When Joseph was about 10 years old, his father decided to move the family from Vermont to Palmyra, New York. Joseph's dad left the family there with Lucy in charge and went to Palmyra to try to find a place for them to farm and live. They were in absolute poverty as they left for their journey because as Lucy was leaving, creditors showed up to their wagons and said, you owe us for these debts. And so she paid these creditors who were left behind off all their debts and left them very little money to sustain them as they went through this journey. They hired a man named Caleb Howard to drive the sleigh through the snow to get to Palmyra, New York. And Howard was a cruel and womanizing man who insisted that a young girl sit next to him in the sleigh, and that left Joseph cast out and having to have to walk. He had had this uh, leg infection and actually still walked with a limp when he was an adult. So here you have him hobbling along for miles in the snow with this bum leg because of these selfish people. Later, after Lucy Max Smith got tired of his shenanigans, she fired him, and the family continued on with another family. While they were with this other family, the boys in that family pushed Joseph out of the sleigh, and he landed somehow, and he says in manuscript history of the church that he was left to wallow in my blood until a stranger came along, picked me up, and carried me to the town of Palmyra. Some believe these stories support the notion that Joseph was being prepared for the suffering he would endure as the prophet of the church. I don't know that this is true. I think actually it played a part into the way that he took the Bible and said, I don't buy this stuff anymore. I'm going to come up with a theology that makes sense relative to all this suffering and everything that we're going through, that you come to this earth as a test and you get through this test from a pre-existence and you're glorified for even having come here in the first place. He took this information and he, he took his life experiences, which were so brutal in the early part of his life, and he just churned out his own imaginative gospel, which is reflected all through the Book of Mormon. And when we get to the Book of Mormon, I'm going to show you why. In addition to some extreme mystical views and magical practices by men he trusted, we will, which we're going to discuss next week at length, the magic that they did as the family, before we get to the first vision. I will end tonight by talking about Joseph's exposure to extreme sorrow. When he was 17 years old, after having the first vision, and two months after saying that he, an angel came to his room to reveal gold plates, his older brother Alvin died unexpectedly. Now, Alvin was the glue that held the family together. It says that he did, he did things for the family and Hiram did things for the family while the father was out of the way with wine. 
So this was the family circumstance, and here's Alvin, who was a sober guy, who worked very hard, who did all these things for the family, up and dying unexpectedly. Historical records show that Alvin was a surrogate father in the Smith home, that he tended to a family store they tried to start, that he used a seer stone in addition to Joseph and his father to search for buried treasure, that he, was the, that he was the one in the family who was most excited about the prospects of these golden plates being discovered and unearthed. And also that Alvin's presence was needed for Joseph to obtain the plates from the hill. This is something you don't hear very often. All of this had to change when Alvin suddenly died unexpectedly. Joseph said of his brother, he was the oldest member of my father's family. He lived without spot from the time he was a child. From the time of his birth, he never knew mirth. He was candid and sober and never knew play. He minded his mother and father and toiling all day long. He was one of the soberest men. And when he died, the angel of the Lord visited him in his last moments. In November of 1823, Alvin uh, became very ill, and a doctor, Joseph became, became to disdain doctors, a doctor gave Alvin uh, a drug or a mixture called calomel, and this was a mercury-based compound that in his stomach hardened like a rock. And so Alvin uh, could not dislodge that. Doctors came in, and they massaged his stomach and everything, and, and Alvin knew, I'm going to die. He was dying, and he had literally three days. And he called the family together, including Joseph, and he said to Joseph, quote, Be a good boy and do everything that lies in your power to obtain the record. And shortly thereafter, he died. And his death served as a tremendous and life-numbing experience to the family. It was completely unexpected. It was the first death of anybody in their family, and it threw them into a tailspin. Unexpected deaths of immediate family members is very difficult. In the year 2000, I was sitting in a bank at my job and I got a call from a friend at 7 in the morning that my own elder brother died unexpectedly that day. I can tell you from firsthand experience what it does when the first member of the family, of the kids and the parents, dies unexpectedly. It throws everybody into a chaos and turmoil and it causes you to reflect greatly upon your religious beliefs and everything else that is going on. So I can tell you from first-hand experience that there was a great amount of sorrow, and the historical writings show that there was a great amount of sorrow too. So we have the Smith family who were dirt poor. They were socially outcast, mystical in their thinking. They were visionary. Their families were split up by religion. Lucy had joined the Western Pennsylvania Church, Presbyterian Church, excuse me, and took half the children with her to church, while Joseph Sr. refused to go and instead stayed home with Alvin when he was alive and William and Joseph Jr. and looked for treasure. They believed gold plates were coming, that this buried treasure was going to be an answer to so much in their family, and they couldn't wait for them to arrive, and it took a number of years for that to happen. And they also believed that God could appear to them, that he had appeared to them, and that it was through the Smith family that all these things were going to happen. The pressure on this boy was enormous for him to do what he could to save the family. Making matters worse, a Christian pastor or minister came to the Smith home after Alvin had died and told Lucy Max Smith and Joseph Sr. that Alvin had gone to hell because he hadn't been baptized. 
This in and of itself probably embittered Joseph toward the Christian church from that point forward, as Lucy Max Smith lost it, believing that the minister could have been true, and then began to get everybody in the family baptized. Joseph Sr. and his son became more embittered toward the establishment of the Christian church. And by the way, that, that pastor or minister was extremely wrong. Next week, we're going to continue to investigate the magic worldview of Mormonism and how they actually practiced and things that you never hear in your Sunday school or priesthood lessons about the magical occultic influences in the Smith family as they progress toward getting these golden plates, the first vision, and everything else. Let's open up the phone lines at 801-973-TV20. 801-973-TV20 or 973-8820. And come on, you guys. If you're going to call, have a question. You don't, need to, you don't need to thank me, really. You don't need to say you love anything about the show. If you want to say you hate it, say you hate it and get to the point. You don't need to hear your personal stories. You can email those to us. This is for live audience. We've got to keep it going. Have your question ready. Ask it, and let's move forward. Okay, while the operators are answering those calls... Uh, we had 147 emails last week, and I want you to know that many of them are back to the, why are you picking on the LDS? Well, I think that the LDS need to hear the truth, and I think they need to hear it from a source that loves them, whether you believe it or not, and you see anger in my face. I'm a passionate guy when I speak, but I think that if the truth is known, it gives people an opportunity to decide what they're going to do with this faith. But when it's not known, all you're doing is operating in the dark. And there's no way you can call it faith if you have a, a half-informed uh, half position on the religion you say you believe. So this show, this year especially, talking about history, is about that. And we hope you understand that. You know, if I was raised a Catholic, I might be doing a show on Catholicism. Or if I was raised Islam, I might be doing a show on Islam. But because I was raised LDS, 40 years, know your doctrine, became a Christian miraculously, that's why I talk about the LDS doctrines in church. All right, we're going to Kathy uh, on line two. Kathy, you're on Heart of the Matter. My question is just this. Um, do you feel like you have any um, authority, right, professional background, doctrinal, anything to say that you know what affects a family when somebody dies? I mean, I think there's widespread culturally where you're from. Where you, I don't think anybody can say just because you had an older brother die or some. I don't think you can even perceive to say what goes on in anybody else's family that you live by, that lived a hundred years ago, that Moses did. You can liken, you can try to, try to get a feeling for, but I'm trying to figure out why you say, I can tell you, it sounds to me like you're trying to tell people exactly how things work. No, I'm not. And when you Kathy, don't. you got to let me talk now. That's a nice diatribe. Listen, that's my question. That, that's not a question. It's really a statement, but I don't believe I know. I just believe that there are aspects of the picture, one, that are not revealed. You said and No, if they're not revealed, I said I know what it's like to lose a brother, and I do, I unexpectedly. You came out and said, this is how it affects, and somebody that has a bone to... Well, it, well listen, the historical, the historical records, Kath, if you have Kathy... Listen, the historical records about how the Smith family reacted to the death were exactly the, uh, the way I reacted and my family reacted when we had a death. And I think that you have some universal traits. I can't say definitively how it played out completely in the Smith home. But, Kathy hung up. 
because she doesn't want to hear the truth. But I can say that there are some semblances that I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe will play out when you read these things. But uh, just to answer Kathy's question, the Smith family was devastated when their uh, son died, and, and understandably so. So um, we'll just take it from there. Terry, first-time caller, Salt Lake City. Terry, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Um, I'm, I married into the Mormon faith. Um, not, I'm not a member, do not want to be a member. Currently going through some cancer um, things, and I just want to know why there isn't a website or some way for me to make it known to my relatives that if I do die, I do not want to be baptized for the dead. Wow. I feel very strongly about this and get the same remote answer, remote answer from a 3-year-old to an 88-year-old. You don't have to accept it. Yeah. And why do they do it? Yeah. I just don't get it. I mean, it's, you know, I understand that they, you know, they, it's like they can't have their own opinion. They just give you this answer. Word for word, it's exactly the same no matter what generation you're speaking to. Yeah. Well, I know the church got in trouble a few years back for baptizing victims of the Holocaust. And I know the uh, Anti-Defamation League stepped in and said, stop baptizing the Jews uh, vicariously in your temples. And I believe they responded to that. If you want to know where that is, I'll find it. It was in a sense. I, I know about that, but I don't have, you know. I mean, How they can stop by, vicariously, the person who is going to probably push that through for you to have that work done is going to be your husband. And, uh, you know, I don't, maybe you can send a letter. Maybe you can request it. Uh, I hear that they baptized Elvis. I hear they baptized Hitler. I've heard those things. I don't know that that's true, but I've heard that. So how you can stop it, I don't know, especially if your husband is the driving force behind you having that done. No, no, no. He is not. He's not, yeah. Uh, maybe a letter to him and just saying, hey, please don't, you know. Or, you know, or at least in their little books that they do, if they put in there, with her dying breath. She requested this not be done. <laughs> that would be nice. Frankly, I feel. I mean, I, you know, my whole identity is in my religion. How's your uh, health now? I'm going through cancer treatment. I have no idea what's going to happen. Uh -huh. I'm praying very hard and trying to make all the right choices. Uh -huh. This is something that is making me crazy. Yeah. Very sorry to hear that, and uh, Terry. God bless you. Thank you. I do enjoy your program. I know you wanted to keep it short, but I really have enjoyed it. Um, Enjoyed your program. Thank you so much. Thanks, Terry. Take care. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. We're going to Howard, first-time caller in Clinton, Utah. Howard, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, hi. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. I was wondering, uh, what you were a Mormon for 40 years. What made you switch to being a Christian? What was the turning point? Did you have a nursery calling? or I had a, uh, I had a call in my life when I... Uh, accepted Jesus as a sinner and said I couldn't handle my life on my own and I needed him to step in and take over my uh, my ways and forgive me of my sin and give me a new heart and a new life and that I would wait for him to do that and he did it. And it uh, had such an impact on me, the, the way that I saw life, the way I read the Bible and my understanding. I remained LDS for four years thereafter, but... Um, I knew that there was a marked difference between what I experienced in the LDS church and each of their uh, weekly meetings and what I had experienced at the side of the road by the hand of God. And so uh, that's why our ministry is titled Born Again Mormon, because I believe that is an aspect that's avoided by the LDS church, and it's a very important one to anybody who wants a relationship with God. 
Well, that's very interesting. Um, were you a missionary for the Mormon Church? Yeah, I was. Full-time missionary, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, with the Amish. Well, that's uh, something else. Now you're doing this. Um, did you have other church callings in the Mormon Church? Was there were people uh, mean to you? Or? No, the people were very nice to me. The people liked me. I was gregarious. I was a, a great LDS leader. You know, they looked up to me. And uh, I was a seminary teacher for a number of years. And I was in a bishopric. And I was a high priest. And I was in a stake high council for four years. And uh, I'm a great fallen uh, reprobate in the city I come from now when I meet up with LDS who knew me. But when I was a member of the church, they were very good to me. I was one of them. And uh, no. Uh, I had, did not leave the church because of the people. I left the church because of the doctrine, pure and simple. And you've been a Christian for one year now? or No, since 97. Okay. And where do you see yourself in another 10 years out? I'm answering all these questions because it might be beneficial to our viewers. Another 10 years out, I have no idea. I don't know where I'm going to go when this show's done. I mean, the Lord's in charge of my life. I try to turn it over to Him daily and to see where He's going to take us. I pray to God He'll use me, and that's, that's all I can do. Uh, do you have a church or something to attend? I go to Calvary Chapel in Southern California. I fly in once a week and do the show. Okay. Does that, um, does that answer it all? It, it that explains a lot. Yes, it does. Go to our website, www and you can read more about it, and we can uh, communicate via email. Okay, I appreciate it. All right, man, take Bye. care. Bye-bye. We're going to John, first-time caller in Syracuse. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how are you doing tonight? Doing well. Good. Hey, I've watched your show off and on for a little while now and find myself kind of drawn to you because my family... Uh, also goes to church, uh, LDS church, and, uh -huh. and I do not. And so, born as an LDS member, and at this point I'm just struggling with some of the doctrine of the church. Uh -huh. And so well, my big question with you is, is more or less on the family, uh, because you go through this as well. It's, it's a tough one, it really yeah. is, uh, to watch your kids and your wife go to church and not be able to partake in that mainly because you don't believe. Yeah, it's brutal. Uh, what do you believe in? Well, at, at this point, I think I'm struggling which way to go and which doctrine and, and which really what to read and what to study up on. I just, I feel like everybody had a story. Yeah. And how do you believe them all? Yeah, it's tough. Uh, a couple things, if I can. One, can we send you the book? And if so, stay on the line and just give the at your uh, an address, and we'll send you a book that I think will help you uh, at least understand where to go in your relationship with God. That should be your first and, f and most primary uh, decision. And I would just continue to seek Him. If it means peace in your family while you're going through this, and you go to the LDS church with your wife and sit there with her, you know, if it's going to help your marriage and things, go. You know, you know what it's about. You're not going to have some new conversion to it. But as you continue to uh, try to seek God through spiritual rebirth and He changes you, then you're going to have some decisions to make. But then you're going to have the spiritual fortifications in order to face those trials. Right now, you don't have them. Right now, you're just a guy who you might be able to go atheist as well as black magic, Hindu, or, or a Catholic or Mormon. So you're kind of, right now, you need to have the Lord on your side. And once that happens, then you're going to be able to understand his word and what's going on with you in the Mormon church. 
Yeah. Well, I think more than anything, I do believe in God, and I do believe, you know, I'd never go atheist. Good. And, Praise God. A lot of Mormons do, and that's why I say that. Yeah, and, and my biggest thing is probably more motivation than anything, and I think I'm at a place where I'm just taking a break, because I, I have been raised in the church, yeah. and you just get to a point where I think everybody needs to step back and, and really have a true conversion one way or another. Amen to that. Yeah. And that conversion, that is so key. I really hope you'll stay on the line so we can send you the book, because it talks. it doesn't talk really about the things that are wrong with Mormonism. It's not this show in printed form. It's about rebirth, and I really believe it'll help you. Yeah. One of the other things I was wondering about is some of the things that you read into when you had your moment, and I've heard you say it before, when, you know, you realized you were a sinner. What was some of the literature that you read at that point that made your eyes open up? Well, my eyes opened uh, prior to reading the literature, believe it or not. My eyes opened because of the condition of my life. Uh, outwardly performing, inwardly dead. But after I came to know the Lord, I read several books that changed. Uh, More Than a Carpenter was one. Uh, Born Again by Chuck Colson was another. Those two affected me greatly. Um, Evidence Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Those three uh, really helped me understand what I had experienced and what that meant relative to my life. Okay, so do you feel like, you know, the warm fuzzy, you've been in the church, you've heard, oh, the warm fuzzy feeling when you read the Book of Mormon. Do you feel like when you read those books that there was a warm fuzzy, or do you think it was more the fact that the content made more sense The content. There was no warm fuzzies. Okay. Yeah. All right. Appreciate your time. All right, man. Take care. God bless you. All right. We're going to Kelly, first-time caller from Salt Lake City. Kelly, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. My question is, how do you explain the Trinity to a Mormon. Mormons believe that God actually not only has a body, but is separate, and Jesus is kind of lower than God. And I was recently trying to (laughs) witness to someone about that, and he had a hard time understanding it and was very confused, and basically used the scripture on me that God is not the author of confusion. So that if if the Trinity was easy to understand, then that would be of God. Mm. I have a couple responses which may or may not be of help. First and foremost, the Trinity is one of the most difficult doctrines for Mormons and even some Christians to comprehend. I don't comprehend the Trinity, to tell you the truth, but I do know that we do believe in one God, and I do know that Jesus was God in the flesh. Philip said, Jesus, show us the Father, and Jesus said, Philip, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, so I, I don't believe in a plurality of gods or polytheism, which might make sense to the human unregenerate mind. But I do believe that when you are spiritually reborn, your understanding of the Trinity becomes apparent. Now, this is the, the, the key. Latter-day Saints are not gener- uh, spiritually reborn. And so no matter how hard they try to get their arms around this concept called Trinity, they can't. And so trying to teach, trying to teach them that is almost a vain exercise. I wouldn't even bother with it. I would say let's not even worry about those concepts right now, the Trinity or, or anything else. Let's just talk about Jesus and salvation and your sin. And I would try to focus on those things and leave the Trinity to when they're able to understand the Word as they read it. Okay, that's great. That's kind of what I had thought about. Good. Always keep it concentrated on Jesus. So. Amen. Very much. Thank you, Kelly. Take care. God bless you. We're going to Steve, first-time caller on line four. Steve, you're on Heart of the Matter. How's it going today, Sean? Doing well. How are you? I have a question for you. As a transplant to this valley, what is a seeing stone? Oh, 
Wow. That's really something. A, a friend of mine who's a historian at U of U just sent me a paper that he wrote. Uh, he's a very capable historian, a very capable guy, Michael, or Mike. And uh, it's all about seer stones. And what they were is they were used for something called scrying. S-C-R-Y-Y-R-I-N-G. And it was any stone. It could even be your thumbnail. It could be a piece of flint. It could be anything that you could see a reflection in, and they would put sometimes animal fat on it. And when they'd see the reflection, they would stare at it so long that they would start to see visions in it. And I always liken it to, uh, have you ever sat in a church and you're staring at the pulpit from a distance and you just keep staring at it and staring at it and staring at it? And pretty soon everything starts tripping out around you and all the lights start changing? Perfect. I got to stop eating that cereal before I go to church. No, but that can, if you stare at something long enough, you can have tricks on your eyes. And I think scrying played on a similar thing or a demonic type thing. But that's what it was, is they would look at these stones and they would see a message come up in them. Now, Joseph Smith, when he translated the Book of Mormon, put a seer stone that he found in a well. It had a hole uh, bore through it. And someone asked Joseph once, why is there holes through the seer stone? He says, to hook it on your belt. So um, people think that you look through that hole and you see it. But no, you're really looking on the surface of the stone. He would put it in a hat and he would see the words trans uh, of the Book of Mormon come on the stone, he said. And he would just translate directly. That's what a seer stone is. So the plates and the stone are in the hat. No, the plates weren't in the hat. The plates were under a cloth on a table or sometimes not even in the room. Sometimes not even in the building. Okay, well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. All right, we're going to Steve and Clearfield on line one. Steve, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Nice to talk to you again. You too. Uh, this is probably a gamma question. Gamma. We haven't done that in a while. <laughs> um, just a little contradiction here between the Articles of Faith and the Book of Mormon introduction. Okay. Uh, the introduction states the Book of Mormon is a volume of Holy Scripture comparable to the Bible. It is a record of God's dealings with the ancient inhabitants of the Americas and contains, as does the Bible, the fullness of the everlasting gospel. Right. Fullness meaning nothing needs to be added, translated correctly, everything's full. But yet you go back to the Articles of Faith, verse number 8, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God, as far as it is translated correctly, but they also throw in, we also believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God. Yeah. Very contradictory. Yeah, it is. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, Joseph Smith, uh, the first Book of Mormon, 1830, when it was published, it called him the author. And later on, as they redid it, they called him the translator. There's a number of things. They just keep evolving and keep changing it. They don't teach these things to the members. And you're right. That's a great contradiction between uh, what the Book of Mormon says the Bible is and then what uh, the, the Articles of Faith say it is, too. You know, the Book of Mormon wouldn't exist if the LDS said uh, that, that, it's a, that the Bible is a perfect book or that the Bible is infallible. There'd be no need for a Book of Mormon at all. The Bible would be perfect. But So they had to kind of dismiss the Bible more and more and more and more in order to build up the Book of Mormon, and that's what they've done. True. Hey, great call. Thanks for uh, the information. Thank you. All right, Steve. Bye-bye. God bless you. God bless you. We're going to Riley, first-time caller in Layton. Riley, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, sir. Um, I come from a long line. My great 
grandpa, Joseph Fielding Smith. And you told a story, um, I think it was last week, about um, how Joseph Sr. would tell a story to his kids. Yeah. And it was in the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Where, do you, where did you find that? And, and also, once I saw that to present that to my family or my mom, how can I do it without offending her? Probably can't on the last part. Uh, you might say, have you ever read Lucy Max Smith's biographical sketches? In that, she comes up with seven dreams that her husband had that predated Joseph Smith's birth in many cases. One of those dreams was a dream of the Tree of Life, in essence. And uh, many of the aspects of the Tree of Life that you find in the Book of Mormon in, uh, in uh, 1 Nephi chapter 8 you will find Lucy Max Smith saying that her husband had that dream well before Joseph was even born. Right. So, and as far as and as far as getting that to them, let me ask you this: What do they see when they see you as a son? Do they see a Christian man, or do they see somebody who's just fighting against the church? No, oh, I went to a, um, a. I don't know if you ever heard of Reformers Unanimous in Rockford, Illinois, huh. kind of a discipleship program out there. I went to that. They sent me there to help me get off the alcohol. Uh-huh. Back at Born Again Christian. Uh-huh. And they're kind of like, what the heck happened? <laughs> you know what I mean? So I've been trying to tell them, but they, get, they don't even want to discuss it with me. Tell them about what happened to me with Christ. They don't even want to hear it. Oh, yeah. So I, I'm try, I don't want to offend them in any way, but when you said that, I was like, oh, my gosh. Did it change your life? Yeah, it changed my life completely. How long has it been since you've drank? Uh, six months. So it's been six months. Well, give them time as they see you really dedicated. You're living Layton. There's a number of churches on our website that recommend churches in Layton. Elevation's one. You sound like a young man. It might fit in well there. And um, there's other churches, too, that if that doesn't fit you. And uh, you should just start going to church. Follow up on that. It'll help you stay strong in your sobriety. And as your family sees you becoming a truly Christian man, they won't just say, what the heck happened? I don't want anything to do with it. But wow, something really genuine happened to this guy, and I want to know about it. And you'll begin to have a harvest from the seeds you plant over the years, but it won't be quick. Okay. All right, brother. All right, sir. Amen. Thank you, sir. God bless you. God bless you. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. Okay, bye-bye. We're going to Tris in Ogden. Tris, you're on... Part of the matter. Um, yes, I I was raised um, in the LDS religion, but uh-huh. um, lately I've been um, studying, going to the Catholic Church and studying um, that religion. Uh-huh. What do you um, do? You know much about that, and what what do you think of their claim that they um, came from that they have authority from Peter? Yeah, I think that uh, that claim is uh, just a religious claim that institutions will grab onto different claims to make themselves uh, more authoritative than others. I think that when we see James as the head of the apostles in the New Testament, that that sometimes reduces Peter's place. I also think that Petros and Jesus saying, upon this rock I will build my church, was not talking about um, Peter, but was talking about um, the gospel. And so I just think it's just what religions do. They, they want power. They want people. And you're going to get more people if you say we have the truth than if you say the truth can be found wherever Jesus is found. The Catholic Church has a lot of people who are Christian, people who will be going to heaven. The Catholic Church has a lot of people by virtue of their size alone who will probably go to hell. And so do, the, so do many Christian churches. It's about a relationship. LDS people run the risk of going from one organization to another 
often from one cult or totalist group that uses methods to another totalist group that uses methods because that's what you're used to. I would definitely avoid any religious institution that m makes claims of being infallible or having o the only truth and trying to find Jesus first. Okay, yeah, because I wasn't sure, um, you know, I, I'm still trying to figure out whether there's just one true religion or if if there's just good in all the, the churches, you know. I think, so. there, I think there is one true religion, and, and is it Tris? Yes. That one true religion is called the body of Christ, and there's many examples in the New Testament that likens the body of Christ to the body of a human being, and there's, there's people who are who are the toenails and there's people who are the feet and eyes and the hands and we all are made up of different parts and we don't all do the same thing but we all have a separate function and this body of Christ is widely diverse Tris and it's found among believers who really truly know that Jesus is their savior and that they're saved by grace and whether they're a Catholic or a Christian or a, or a Baptist or a Methodist or whatever when 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 Jesus looks at his church, he's not looking at a building and an institution. He's looking at believers in him. And that's the difference between the Old Testament church and the children of Israel and the new church and the, and the dispensation of grace. It's for everybody. And believers make up his church now. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate um, the answer. I've just, you know, really kind of... Hey, can I send you our book? Um, no. <laughs> uh, what Good answer. Say? Uh, yeah, I was, you mean a book on what? Can I send you a book that we uh, give to people uh, that will might help you understand the difference between religion and a relationship? I'm sure. Okay, stay on the line, an operator will pick up, and then just give them an address and we'll send the book to you. Okay, great, thank you. Okay, Tris, bye-bye. Bye. All right, operator pick up line three, we're going to Janice, first time caller from Draper. Janice, you're on the heart of the matter. Yes. Um, you know what? I I am a member of the Mormon Church, and I've had numerous spiritual experiences testifying to the need, the truthfulness of the church. Okay. And I know a lot of other people within the church that have had the same experience. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't deny it. I feel like Joseph Smith, and he said, I dare not deny it. I know that he did see God the Father and the Son okay. and restored the church that existed at the time of Christ on the earth with the form of the Twelve Apostles. My aside from your testimony, do you have a question aside from your yes, testimony? I do. My question is, how do you account for all these people within the church who have had these spiritual experiences just like me? Yeah. The same way I account for uh, the Shintos believing that their imperialist ruler is God, the same way the Jehovah's Witnesses have feelings and believe their church is the only true church, the same way that uh, a Muslim man will uh, don a backpack and go and blow up a, a synagogue full of uh, Jews in uh, the name of Jihad, belief and spiritual experiences can be manipulated by a number of factors and have nothing to do with biblical truth. You have to have some standard by which you go by, otherwise you're going to go toss to whoever can influence you most. Yes, and, and my standard is the witness of the Holy Ghost. Okay, and so let me ask you, how, why, how is your standard any different than the Jehovah's Witness who says the Holy Ghost bears witness to them that they have the truth? 
the the difference is is that uh, the spirit will all bear, always bear witness that Jesus is the Christ because okay. that is the truth. Okay, and they, they the difference is the fullness of the gospel. Okay, now wait a minute. The, the the fullness of the gospel. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe they have the fullness of the gospel. How are you going to say? What is true when you have other people having spiritual manifestations that are equal to yours, especially in their determination to follow it? How can you say yours is superior to theirs when you're relying on these feelings? Because the truthfulness is that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, so they say the same thing. I know. I say Jesus is the Christ. I know, and it's so. Well, so I know it's so too. That the church that existed at the time of Christ with the 12 apostles and the full organization of the church. And who tells you that this church needs to exist with 12 apostles? Who tells you? The Bible doesn't tell you this. Uh, well, who, who I, tells you this? The, the Savior set up the church and its organization. During the Pax Romana, when everything was set for the gospel to go forth as he has instituted it, and he said the gates of hell will not prevail against it, the LDS Church said the gates of hell did, and it fell away into complete apostasy and needed to be restored. How do you justify that? For no quorum of twelve apostles, nor the priesthood authority. Pardon me? It did. When the restoration took place, the priesthood authority was the quorum of the twelve apostles. Oh, ma'am. The priesthood, read Hebrews. All uh, the things that the Christ had established were not there anymore. This is so painful to me because I know that you're sincere and you have such a nice, sweet uh, LDS voice and you share so convincingly and I know you believe the things you're saying. I know it. Well, you don't know it because if you know it, then you don't have faith and we live by faith. The scriptures say, no, if you don't have, uh, if you have knowledge, you don't have faith. That means you're not living by faith and that's a dangerous place to be. No, you, I know the surety. You don't know of an assurity, ma'am. That is just not true. That you think you know of an assurity, it just doesn't fit with the Bible. You know of no more of a surety than a Jehovah's Witness, or than a Muslim, than an atheist. You don't know any more of an assurity. Of course I do. You don't. I'm sorry. I do. But you don't. We can sit here back and forth and now and do this. Tell me what I know. Well, I know you don't because it doesn't. Don't it's know not, what I know. It's you not congruent. Remind me of it's, it's not. I remind you of Korahor. You need to really read your Book of Mormon to understand who Korahor was. He was an antichrist. I believe in Jesus. He's my savior. I am not a Korahor. Now listen, I'm going to let you go. Thank you for the call, but you need to reevaluate how you get your knowledge of truth. And that's through the Holy Ghost. Yep, and that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses say. I got the last word. Okay, we have 20 seconds left. Uh, I thought that was a good call to end on because you can hear the tenor and that they try to get you with the softness and how, but it's really, again, emotionalism. Stay tuned um, for Heart of the Matter next week and the Infallible Word is coming up on Monday nights and Friday nights. We hope you'll join us for that. God bless you.